It's Friday, May 15th. Welcome to episode 26 of Insert Content Here. Insert Content Here. Words intentionally unclear. Insert Content Hi, I'm Jeff Eaton, a digital strategist at Lullabot. Every couple of weeks, I get together with uh, cool people from the world of content strategy, digital publishing, and stuff like that to chat about the latest news, interesting projects they're working on, and uh, so on. This week, our guest is David Eads. He's a news application developer at NPR, and he's worked in uh, some of the best-known newsrooms in the world to build cool, cutting-edge tools for journalists. Um, we're going to chat with him about uh, the challenges that come with uh, digital publishing and, and some of the cool things that he's been working on. So, hi, David. Hi, Jeff. Uh, you know, it's it's funny. I, I think we've been, like, crossing paths and, and chatting on uh, Twitter for, I th- it feels like, ages. But uh, it was just... Um, just I think a couple of days, maybe about a week ago, that we ended up having a, a brief discussion about um, Snowfall, the infamous Snowfall, Snowfall project. Um, and you know, it, I, I I wanted to ask you a little bit more about that later, but I thought it was so funny that you know, still like two years after it was published, uh, three years after it was published, it's still like spawning conversations. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh it's sort of a beast that hasn't it hasn't quit. You still hear people saying, Can we snowfall that? It's become sort of a verb in in it, media. It has officially verbed. Uh so okay, so first off, a news application developer. How, like what what falls under that umbrella? How does a news app differ from just like a plain old CMS or a web publishing tool or something like that? That's a good question. Uh, you know, it's sort of a, a term of art in a lot of ways that encompasses, I think, a lot of different types of digital storytelling at this point. And really, in a lot of ways, the the name is maybe a bit of a, a historical accident. Um, my boss here at NPR, who's uh, originally my boss at the Chicago Tribune, he and some fro- folks from ProPublica, uh, you know, really kind of pioneered this type of team. Um, and one of the original teams was called the News Applications Team at the Chicago Tribune. And so the, the name News App stuck. Um, I think when people think of apps, they think of, you know, something that's on your phone, uh, you know, a game or, or you know, um, a widget on your phone. What we're really talking about is is digital storytelling, um, whether that's data journalism, like deep dives into uh, crime or other kinds of data, um, or just, you know, beautiful online storytelling. Um, uh, you know, another, another part of it would be creating tools that empower people in the newsroom. I, I think we'll get, and storytellers generally, um, and I hope we get a chance to talk more about that. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting is, you know, from some of the conversations that we've had and then just hearing other people who are sort of working in this space, it seems like, um, it, 
the idea of being a, you know, an application developer feels very siloed. It's, you know, you make a product and you hand it off and then there are people who use it. But um, at least, you know, in, in the kinds of projects you've talked about, it really sounds like it's, it's more of a connected practice. It's like you're, you're working alongside journalists to develop stuff that they need. Not as much. It's not like, and here's the new version of the news app. Right. And that's really, I mean, that was really the, I think, uh, a really fundamental innovation in digital news, sort of starting in the, you know, in the mid uh, aughts, to use that word, Um, but starting sometime in the mid aughts and, and really gaining steam sort of, you know, 2008, 2009 in that range, um, was just this idea of uh, a team that wasn't IT. So in newsrooms, typically the digital storytellers were IT and they were doing, you know, what we sort of, you know, standard, standard development practice or even, you know, waterfall type, type practices. And, and the innovation was to put those folks directly in the newsroom, working directly with reporters, um, and break down some of those barriers uh, in terms of culture and access to technology and f- even physical proximity. And then the team that I'm on here at NPR is interesting because it takes that a step further. And we're a group of developers, designers, photographers, and soon to be an illustrator as well, um, working together. So we're sort of a, a fully integrated team um, across a lot of different multimedia disciplines. So that, that sounds pretty cool. I mean, it, it's interesting because in like in the agency development world and, you know, in, in like startup culture and stuff like that, that idea of like a tightly knit, you know, multifunctional team where people from different disciplines all work closely together is like, you know, everybody's like, oh yeah, of course, of course, that's really cool. But it's interesting to see that happening in, um, in the news and publishing world too. I, 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 you know, I think that in some ways the, uh, the crisis in news has has forced this to to come about um you know i think the the death of the newspaper is is somewhat exaggerated but it it's happening in a lot of places and and so you know the newsrooms are having to adapt and they're having to be creative and experiment and so you know they can't afford to to silo um software development and, and sort of lock it away from content development. And really that makes sense because what you come up with, the the end result is so much better when you have teams that are, are sort of working across these disciplines and not sort of sitting in their little section of the building, um, getting frustrated that they're getting, you know, I mean, I think a really common thing that, that I've heard from people working in newsroom IT is is you know just that they're just inundated with requests for things to do and you know you just create some sympathy for each other's dis- disciplines and and problems when you can sit close to people and work together and when, and work when, the the, I, when the IT team is something more than the place where requests for features go and the newsroom is something other than where the tickets come from exactly right exactly so how did you like? How did you get involved with this work? I know you you worked at um, you know this uh, I think the Tribune and uh, now at NPR. How did you how did you become a part of this stuff? 
So I was, uh, when I first moved to Chicago in 1999, I got involved in uh, a thing that, I mean, I think the word blog had not been invented, or at least we had not heard of it until a little bit later, but I got involved in an online journalism operation uh, uh, called The View from the Grand. You can still see the website. It's viewfromthegrand.com. And it was about life in public housing and sort of morphed into uh, a long-running investigation of uh, a group of cops who um, were alleged to, you know, have have uh, been brutal and, and brutalized people in, in, you know, in sort of a systematic way. Uh, and so I did that um, for several years and... That sort of sharpened my my development skills, and I became much better working on CMSs and, and stuff like that. We you know we used WordPress 1.0 for that project. Ooh, um, old school, super old school. And then and then I sort of yeah you know, I was always wanted to get back to media, but I needed to pay the bills, so I wound up being a Drupal developer for uh, many years and. Then uh, a couple of years ago, three years ago, found my way back into the media uh, through the Chicago Tribune. That's that's pretty cool. Like, it, so what was it like returning to like the newsroom world? Was it? I mean, had it had things? What was it like returning after that gap? Because I know that was such a. It. I mean. I say it was such a tumultuous time in, you know, news and digital publishing. I mean, it still is to some extent, but it feels like at least people have now adjusted to the idea that it is tumultuous. Well, it was it was actually totally different. When when we worked in the housing projects, we we worked out of a an abandoned unit. We just squatted. That was our office. And we're doing, you know, stuff that that in retrospect, you know, feels fairly innovative or fairly forward-looking. Um, but without, I mean, the, but without sort of the, the power of social media and widespread internet adoption, you know, I think internet adoption in the city of Chicago, even at that time was like 40%. It was really low, um, compared to what you see now. So it was interesting. I guess what was interesting was kind of to to go from this kind of scrappy independent media and then have some time away and then be sort of find myself in the middle of the, the really deep existential crisis that, that, that you see in a lot of news. Um, and, and just kind of the absurdities of it, right? Like the, the content management system at the Tribune, you know, at least when I was there, people were still filing from Microsoft Word into a print CMS, um, which then piped its content into another CMS. And so nobody could hyperlink. Not yeah. because they didn't want to, not because they didn't know how to, but because that stuff was just kind of stripped out along the way. So, you know, you saw these really <laughs> sort of these frustrating scenarios where there was real hunger among reporters to kind of up their game and do better digital storytelling, but it, it's it's really difficult. Um, just the demands of the work make it really difficult, and then oftentimes these these sort of you know quote unquote enterprise tools can get in the way as well. The, there's all sorts of interesting talk about the fact that you know news has to change and blah 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 blah. And there, I, I know I've heard so many conversations about how 
there's like institutional inertia and, you know, reporters, especially like, you know, the old guard who don't want to tackle new things. But like what you describe, there's just as much of a thing of the tooling that they have at their disposal in many organizations means they're swimming upstream even to do do things like, you know, hyperlinking or, you know, tying multiple stories together. There isn't the infrastructure to support that. And, you know, it, that that's a really that's a tough you know that's a tough stone to push uphill yeah i mean that's that's exactly it and and really i mean the best collaborations in that i've found in the newsroom are you know between somebody who's sort, sort of young and and digitally savvy and you know by young i mean relatively young and like the crusty old editor whose bs meter you know is just tuned to 11 always um <laughs> You know, those 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 collaborations, especially when you have somebody uh, when you're working with somebody who's naturally curious and interested can really, you know, can really yield some, you know, pretty powerful results. But there's lots of things, whether it's the tooling or the business model, you know, there's lots of stuff that that stands in the way of that. And some of it's just us. Um, I was thinking about I was thinking about this conversation earlier that that we were going to have this conversation, and saw you know the uh, a couple days ago, I saw a story uh, that was praising um, uh, some folks at the Chicago Tribune, my old my old employer, uh, about getting. Um, getting uh, news of an overtime hockey victory to press uh, at like one thirty in the morning. Um, and it just, it really bummed me out because it just felt like the wrong battle to try to be winning and the wrong thing to be proud of in a way <laughs> that people were killing themselves to do something that everybody's going to find out from ESPN.com on their phones when they wake up in the morning anyway. But then I was thinking that really that was a little bit hypocritical. It was true, but it was a little hypocritical because I feel like uh, in a lot of cases, uh, digital is, is, is worse. Um, you know, you see this with the snowfall type story that, that, we were talking about on Twitter that we just kill ourselves to do these stories that we're not really sure that they necessarily have a huge impact. And oftentimes we know that they don't. Yeah. It, well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, and again, you know, that, that's sort of what the, the genesis of this podcast was. I, uh, I, I mentioned something about snowfall. Oh, I, I think I mentioned the, uh, the sort of existential dread that comes um, for a developer when they're in a meeting with like a new client and they're like, so snowfall as the sort of kickoff for it. Um, you know, not because there's anything inherently bad with it. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll back up for anyone who's listening and, and isn't familiar with it. Um, the, the snowfall story um is this i i can't remember the full title of the article but it was this epic sort of you know mic drop piece that the new york times published um in 2012 um about a group of hikers who'd um gone up into the mountains and you know there was a 
there was an avalanche and the effort to locate them and rescue them um, was the focus of the story. And it was incredibly well-researched. It was very, very, it, it was definitely an example of like long form journalism and it had tons of supporting media, everything from um, three dimensional visualizations of the mountains so that people could, you know, see like where everything was positioned to, you know, video clips of interviews with, you know, the different people who were involved. It was, you know, very, very quote, you know, rich storytelling and stuff like that. Um, and it had a design that completely broke the mold from what a lot of people were seeing in, you know, like, you know, CMS driven, you know, news um, and, you know, newspaper applications. So like on a bunch of different fronts, it, it broke the mold and it was, it basically shaped conversations about digital publishing and, you know, rich storytelling and stuff like that for quite a while. But it was also ridiculously expensive to produce. It was a huge investment. Um, and I think a lot of the conversations that followed that didn't really connect that this, you know, it, making an article like this wasn't some sort of like, you know, it wasn't like the Super Bowl ad of your publication, you know, the big moonshot that you would do. And then, you know, you would, it would be a success and that would change everything. Um, and that, it needed to reflect sort of ongoing smaller iterative steps that could affect all of the different projects that were going on in the newsroom, not just the one big, you know, moonshot. I guess I just monologued for a little bit there, but that was some of what you were saying and, you know, when you were responding to, and it really got me thinking about um, what the perspective was from inside of newsrooms about that kind of stuff. Cause I'm usually involved with the implementation side on, you know, on large projects. So I just see it as a, you know, how do we provide tools that we need, but inside of newsrooms, like what, what does snowfall look like? I mean, it, it's a lightning rod in the general publishing world, but like, what, what is, what is, what are the people that you work with? How did they regard that? It was, yeah, it was interesting. It, it definitely, I, I think it moved the ball forward in good ways and bad ways in the newsroom. I mean, there was certain, certainly kind of a, and still is a, a copycat syndrome that we need to do something like that. And uh, to remain critical of it for a minute or critical of the the response to it for a minute, I think a lot of the lessons that were learned or the lessons that came out of it were in some ways maybe the wrong lessons. And it was sort of weird historically because it really wasn't the first time anybody had done this. There'd been marketing sites and, and smaller projects along these lines. ESPN had been, had been producing stories like this for at least a year um, using kind of this, you know, long form rich multimedia template. And they were very, very accomplished. And I'm not entirely sure what the combination of factors were that, that made Snowfall so prominent. I think part of it was just that it was the New York Times. Um, and so, you know, everybody in the, the news industry sort of looks to them because they're, you know, they're just... They're so good and they're such a juggernaut. Um, so, you know, but but one of the things that was interesting was just that knee-jerk reaction, that copycat syndrome that said, well, let's put some sort of moving pictures and some audio snippets and some big photos on a page and we'll replicate the success of Snowfall. 
Um, but a lot of the success of Snowfall, I thought, was actually those 3D maps. Because you had this thing that was really hard to understand without sort of visualizing it in three dimensions. And so the little chapter breaks in Snowfall show fly-throughs of the canyon where this avalanche was and these hikers were hiking through. Um, and so, you know, they meshed kind of perfectly with the content. Yeah, and, and it really helped drive home just, you know, how treacherous the, the situation was for rescuers right. and stuff like that. Right, exactly. Like, it really, you know, the the the, combina- the combination there was kind of mutually reinforcing. And that's what you're always looking for, right? Like, it's 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 what devices are going to let me tell this story the best. Um, and, you know, maybe those are just words. Maybe that's a table. Maybe that's a chart. Maybe that's something, this kind of blowout kind of presentation. Um, but I think, you know, I think, I think that Snowfall definitely led to a pressure to kind of create things that were like Snowfall without really thinking very hard about what made the piece successful or even asking if it was successful. It looked cool. It was, you know, but, but how many people completed it? How many people were really deeply engaged with it? And, and as a corollary, like how much of the work that went into Snowfall was stuff that could be rolled back and could aid future stories that needed similar elements. Right. That's, I mean, that's exactly right. And and that led to us. So, so one of the good things I would say about Snowfall was that there was then interest in providing resources to build some of the tools that could create stories like that and could experiment more um, and make some of those, some of the elements of that Snowfall style st- storytelling more of a day to day kind of thing in the in the news business and and I think that's been a really positive impact from it was that you know at, at least at the Chicago Tribune we we started building we we did a story about flame retardants um they're awful they're in everything that you own um it was a really interesting investigation it's fascinating um, and we wanted to do, you know, something that was similar, kind of a, a really big kind of presentation. And uh, Brian Boyer, the my boss now at NPR, but also my boss at the Tribune, said to me, you know, let's build uh, something that's driven by Google spreadsheets, that's uh, a static page that lives on Amazon S3. We're going to just completely break out of the content management system. We've mainly done Django projects today, uh, so we're not, you know, it wouldn't be database driven. It was just going to be the static site. And this is this is the Tarbell project, right? It became the Tarbell project, right? So, 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 you know, I was coming. That was one of my first projects at the Chicago Tribune, and I was coming from the Drupal world, and I was like, this is not how we do things. You know, you need you know a proper a, a pro- proper content management means you have a database and you have a templating layer, um, and you have well defined data entities. Um, and he was like, "Well, our editors don't know how to use that." Uh, 
our reporters don't know how to use that, but they do know how to use Google Spreadsheets. So let's use Google Spreadsheets and bake out static pages, and that'll be great. And I was so skeptical, um, but it was my job, so I went along with it. And lo and behold, it was really successful. Like We were able to engage and work really meaningfully with the people creating the content much more effectively than I'd ever seen. Yeah, and, I, and I, so, I was really curious about that because, I mean, like, like you were saying, it's, it, it seems almost heretical, you know, the, in the world of, you know, structured content and, and web dev to, you know, say, well, the back end is a Google Doc spreadsheet. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, I thought it was heretical. Um, I really didn't believe that it was going to work, uh, but it worked. It actually worked really well. And so that code base then evolved over time to become what we to, to become a software that's called Tarbell, which uses Google spreadsheets and publishes the Amazon S3 and basically just systematizes that process, um, and takes out a lot of the, the tricky bits, um, but we were really lucky at the Tribune because uh, management, you know, saw what we were making with with early iterations of Tarbell, um, even before it was called Tarbell, and were willing to invest in it and and really kind of build it out. Um, but the real power of Tarbell actually came when we started enabling other people in the newsroom to use it. That was so. That was one of the really interesting. I guess that's one of the really interesting lessons, and in some ways it's sort of an anti-snowfall lesson, is that when you can use these tools to spruce up your day-to-day reporting, really nice things happen. So, you know, if you do crime stories every day, um, and you can figure out ways to improve those crime stories sort of incrementally and in small ways... um, you know, maybe that's 10% more page views for every crime stories. But 10% more page views every single day adds up. It actually adds up to a lot of impact. Yeah, and, and in terms of understanding, too, it's like the, the day-to-day impact of being able to have people more engaged with the writing and getting what's being said versus, you know, once every six months being able to do a gigantic splash article. Right. That yeah. That's exactly right. That oftentimes people don't get, don't ever finish, or or it kind of comes and it goes. Yeah, that's exactly right. When you can when you can really integrate this practice into the day to day work, that's where you really see a lot of the the improvements and engagement. And you know, it's interesting. Is when I was looking at Tarbell and 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 hearing a little bit of what you were saying. Um, I think in a in a previous post about like what it did, I was reminded Clay Shirky actually has written a little bit about like the the world of good enough tools. Like you know, the difference between trying to build the you know enterprise class do it all you know ultra system that's designed to you know essentially be the classic cms that scales up to a million users and can handle everything you throw at it or say well you know here's a particular kind of need we've got let's build something that does it and see if you know people in the newsroom are able to use it effectively and then let's iterate it it it's it's a very very different kind of approach and it, it is scary to try that kind of approach. It doesn't necessarily fit with the models that a lot of us in the software world at least are used to. 
Yeah, I think we we tend not to be used to that. And coming from the Drupal world, and and you know, I don't I want to be careful because if you're a big institution, um, like a museum or a nonprofit or a big company, some of these enterprise CMSs uh, are really really powerful. And I think the open source CMSs, you know, I, I've had to work with a lot of proprietary CMSs as well, and and. The open source ones are much, much better. You know, I mean, I think that, that uh, you know, it, like there's just no doubt in my mind that, that the open source model has been absolutely the way to kind of build great content management systems. And you see that with WordPress. You see that with Drupal. Um, you know, in a way that kind of fits with that good enough principle, they get the job done. Yeah. In yeah. fact, they get the job done really well. Um for a certain kind of content. Um, but you also need that room to experiment and you also need, you also need to be able to kind of fire and forget. Yeah. Uh, I think that's one of the really powerful things about static site building tools that matches a lot of kind of the culture of the newsroom is that when you redesign the front page of your newspaper, you don't go back and redesign all the things in the archive. <laughs> yeah, at least at least historically speaking, you know, it's that was for new issues of the newspaper, you know, a new design wouldn't magically go back and update stuff from the 1800s. Right, exactly, and that's fine. That's okay. Like stuff from the 1800s looks the way it looks and stuff from today looks the way it looks. And that's one of the real power of of the static tools is that you build it and then it's out there. You don't have an increasing maintenance debt. Um, one thing that, that really killed us at, at at least one startup that I worked and several other projects that I worked on was adding WordPress instances, adding Drupal instances, adding servers, adding databases increases your maintenance that over time so that at a certain point you're not doing storytelling, you're not thinking about content, um, you're just kind of plugging holes in the dike to make sure that the servers keep running. Um, and, that, and that really gets you away from the mission of, of, of at least what we're trying to do in the media. So I'm curious, what do you think is like, one of the biggest challenges there um, for like journalists and the, the folks that are working with them. You've talked a little bit about, you know, the tools and, you know, resources and availability, but like, you know, big scale pie in the sky thinking like, what are, what are some of the big challenges that you're seeing a lot of? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) No small question here. Yeah. You know, I, Wow, yeah, the, the, that's a very big question, and I, I just don't think there's a single answer to it. Um, you know, there's business model questions, how do we make money? Um, there's promotional questions, just how do we reach our audience? Uh, there's tool questions. I mean, I mean, from my standpoint, you know, I, I, I tend to think about the world in terms of things that I can solve. Uh-huh. And uh, and I do think that that publishing tools and storytelling tools are still way 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 too hard, um, you know. And and Tarbell was meant as a response to that, 
but it's certainly still difficult. Like it requires command line knowledge and, you know, that's, that's, that's a significant barrier to, to get people over. Um, so, you know, I, I mean, ultimately I think a lot of the question is, is just about sustainability and, I mean, just to kind of wander really far afield, one thing that I I really wanted to try at the Chicago Tribune, and I I hope I do get a chance to try someday, is sort of the pay-what-you-want model, Um, sort of the Radiohead model of of content access. So, for example, when we ran the the Chicago, or when I ran the Chicago Tribune crime site, um, that site is free, and and we felt like it it should be free because it provides this really fundamental public service, um, which is telling people about crime in their neighborhoods. I mean, it's as seen through police data, but it's still very useful. Um, but I always felt that it would be interesting to sort of say something at the beginning, you know, when you come to that site, instead of sort of the the paywall, the paywall that says, hey, you know, for, for $15 a month you can get this content, that just seems like a really difficult model to me because, you know, that's more than you pay for Netflix. Um and there's a bunch of people who have a lot of money who would probably gladly pay more. Um, and there's a lot of people who have no money who still need access to the content um, and who could really benefit from the content and maybe someday could pay more. And so one thing that I've always, you know, kind of dreamed of doing and haven't had a chance to do, though, I will say that NPR's model is kind of the pay-what-you-want model in a lot of ways, Um is is simply to say, hey, we're providing you this resource. If you find it valuable, donate anywhere from zero to whatever you want dollars. Um and see if, you know, see if there's some people who who think that, you know, the Chicago Tribune crime site is worth two hundred dollars to them, um, who have that kind of disposable income. Or who think it's worth a dollar to them because that's all they have to spend, but they still find it valuable. Sort of like uh, you, you can get the, uh, the the NPR tote bag, or you can uh, just donate and, and feel good about it. You can just donate, right? Exactly. Or you don't have to donate, right? Like yeah. you can just listen to NPR. Uh, so, and that was one of the things that was really compelling about me to about coming here was was that that model there is kind of a model like that here more than there is in in the rest of news. I mean, ultimately, I do think that the biggest problem facing all of news is is just how to make money. Um yeah. you look at the the financial returns on mobile ads and they're less than the financial returns on desktop display ads which were less so, than the returns on print ads, way less than the returns on print ads and it's like oh well let's use video because video plays online because places like Facebook uh play video automatically but video is expensive to produce and it's hard to do it right. And so it biases things towards people who are already good at video to begin with. Um, I guess another really big challenge I will say is, uh, is Facebook. Um, huge percentage of our traffic, uh, 
you know, anywhere between 40 and 70% for any given piece that we produce comes from Facebook. And, and that's not uncommon by any means. You know, we, we've worked no. with, you know, news and publishing clients who, who look at very similar numbers where a particular story going viral during a key, you know, news cycle can drive like an entire week's traffic. Yeah. And that's, I mean, these, these aren't even the viral stories. I mean, the viral stories swamp everything. And, but even the non-viral stories, huge amounts of the traffic come from Facebook. And so, you know, we're, we're very, we're very sensitive to changes in the Facebook algorithm because that means, I mean, that's really, you know, that's the difference between 400,000 page views and 200,000 page views. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like what e-commerce, you know, sites faced for a long time, you know, trying to peg themselves to the Google algorithm. And I think, right. you know, it, it, I think it's interesting, too, because a lot of news organizations, I, I think one of the sort of existential questions has been, how much do we attempt to leverage, like, techniques that can you know, you can point to and say these numerically increase virality or the amount of traffic from a given source or whatever, and how much of it is, you know, the the calling to provide a consistent high-quality news source regardless of whether or not the title gets people to click immediately. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and that's, I mean, I, I will say that that's, that's a perennial challenge, with journalism, you know, some of those, you know, we act like some of those are new challenges, but, you know, one of the reasons why we named Tarbell Tarbell is because Ida Tarbell was a pioneering woman journalist. Um, I think it was Warren Harding, uh, uh, you know, said that, you know, journalists like Ida Tarbell, you know, they, they, they rake the muck. Um, and so she <laughs> shot back that, uh, you know, that she was proud to be called, uh, somebody who raked it, you know, who proud to be called a muckraker, um, which was how that word was born. In fact, um, but you know, we named Tarbell, uh, we named Tarbell Tarbell because we wanted people to think about that history and, and, you know, she lived in a, a period of, you know, it was the it was the Gilded Age. It was the the robber barons and her great you know her great journalistic achievement uh, was a, a series of investigations into Standard Oil Company, um, which was Rockefeller's monopoly, um, and her her investigations for Lapham's Quarterly, and then uh, subsequent book actually led to. Um, a lot of the modern antitrust laws and the breakup of Standard Oil, um, and you know, I think it's a heck of a legacy. It's a heck of a legacy, and 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 uh, you know, I just you know, we want people to kind of think about about monopoly when they're publishing their news stories because we're living in an era of Google and Facebook and and a new group of kind of giant monopolies that control really important parts of the infrastructure that, that rules our lives. Um, and so it's just good to think about that. Yeah. One thing I'll note about Tarbell, um, and this is something that, that I learned, I think, you know, in a lot of ways from that emotional design book that, uh, that a book apart did, 
But one of the cool things about Tarbell and one of the things that we got a lot of positive feedback about was one thing that we noticed, just to step back, one thing that we noticed was when we were inflicting it on reporters was that they would get, just get so bummed out, right? Like the technology is hard and you get these cryptic messages and it's like, what's a stack trace? I don't know. Like, I just want to be able to preview my site and make things work. Um, and so we just put cheery little messages in. So when you make a new project that says, Hey, you got this. Um, and that's actually, you know, more than any other feature of the software, that's been the thing that people comment on. They're like, boy, I really love hearing you got this when I make a new project. <laughs> it, it, it's, it adds a sort of humaneness to the experience of using an otherwise very, very nerdy technical project. Yep, and and we added these exactly, and we added these custom error pages that you know when you encounter common errors that we know the solutions to. Just says, hey, don't worry, you know, this probably just means that you don't have permissions to the Google spreadsheet. It's cool, don't worry. <laughs> this can be and fixed and sorted out. Don't don't this freak can out. Be fixed, yeah. and 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 here's the steps that you go through to fix it, and so. You know, I feel like that's been really kind of a revelation. Like, we just kind of did it because it was fun and because we thought it might have an impact. And ultimately, like, that's been one of the kind of the the real legacies of the software so far is is that people really like that feature. <laughs> um, and people just really like that it gives you a little affirmative message at a couple different points in the, the process, and particularly the points that are tough. Yeah. Right. Like like places where where people get frustrated and hung up, it, it tries to be not too cheery, but appropriately cheery. Just kind of like, hey, you you got this. It's okay. Like this, and, and and it's hard for everybody. Like like you're not alone. Yeah, it's not dismissive, but it's calming and it's reassuring. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So. For somebody who's interested in, in getting involved in this kind of stuff, like, you know, you know, you described working as a Drupal developer for a long stretch of time, you know, and then, you know, returning to the world of news, you know, for somebody else who's interested in sort of getting involved in these kinds of challenges, what, what would you suggest they, they start looking at? Is, is there an on-ramp for this or is, is it just the sort of thing where you say, you know what, I would like to start talking about news and you, you knock on the Tribune's door or something like that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's no, there's no, there's no kind of single way to do it. Um, I think a willingness to get paid a lot less than you would in the rest of the tech industry is good. Um, <laughs> but that also means that the the news nerd uh, community is far, far more diverse than than the mainstream IT industry. And that's not to say it's perfect. It's far from perfect. Um, but I was just at, at the National Institute for Computer Assisted Reporting Conference, and it's it's like forty five percent women. And I was at a hackathon around uh, immigration data called Migra Hack, and it was like sixty percent women, um, and primarily Latino. Um, so. You know, uh, one cool thing about this industry is that it is actually quite inviting. Um, you know, there's a bunch of resources for people to start kind of tapping into. Um, uh, there's a publication called Source. It's a little difficult to Google, but if you Google Open News Source, 
Um, it's a great publication about this stuff. There's uh, an email list called the NICAR, called the NICAR list. Um, oh, that the source is one of the projects that uh, Aaron Kassane is involved in, yes. right? Oh, yeah, cool. Yeah, Aaron Kassane is the editor of Source. Oh, fantastic. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So Source is awesome. Um, and so, you know, those are places, those are both two really good places to start just to kind of get the lay of the land. And, you know, I think, I think teaming up with somebody to tell a story, uh, can be a really powerful thing, um, to, to start getting involved. Um, you know, I think one thing that I, I'd love to see more of, but the, but the, you know, is, is growing and exists as sort of the civic hacking movement. Um, it was very strong in Chicago. It's pretty strong here in Washington, D.C., and, you know, that's another place where this kind of, you, you can definitely cut your teeth on these kind of skills. And it's actually a great, I'll, I'll say this, it's a great way to learn coding. You know, everybody wants to learn coding now, right? Even the president, um, you know, like tried to learn a little coding. And, 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 but the thing that really teaches you coding is having a project, like yes. having something, having something to code against, um, and to work on, and some bite-sized chunks to to kind of take on. And so, for many years, I ran a nonprofit in Chicago. Helped run a nonprofit. It was a collective operation uh, called Free Geek Chicago. It was really more focused on computer recycling and hardware. Um, but my passion isn't hardware. It's actually software. And I tried for years to get software development classes going and really kind of had this, you know, traditional classroom model in mind. Like we're going to, I mean, I'm going to stand in front of a class and I'm going to lecture and then people are going to go home and do projects. And first we're going to lose, learn about while loops. You know. it, right, right, right. <laughs> right. Exactly. And for, you know, and, and today we're going to talk about HTTP and it never worked. Like, like I tried it for like, probably three years and every attempt failed and it was so dispiriting. And eventually when I got back into the media, I was like, well, I'm doing media stuff. I need to learn more media stuff. Let's, let's, let's make something that's more of kind of a storytelling lab. Um, and so we called it the Supreme Chi-Town Coding Crew. We met on Saturday afternoons. It was unstructured. It was sort of come as you are um, with whatever skill level you have and whatever skills you have. And we'll figure out how to tell some stories together. And that went really, really well. Um, and people got jobs out of it. And, you know, that actually became a really, you know, fairly successful little project. It was tiny. Um, but, you know, we were able to find some really, like, people that the mainstream tech industry, you know, just would never see who were just insanely talented. And, and, and you know, they've, they've, several of them have gone on to be, you know, quite successful. One guy has a startup that's going like gangbusters, which is, he's, I mean, he's a genius, but, you know, high school dropout from Puerto Rico. He's amazing. Um... So, but, you know, I thought that was really interesting that as soon as we had a real focus, then the, the other thing that was really powerful about having, you know, having that storytelling lens is that it doesn't privilege engineering over everything else. Yeah. 
you know, I think that you often see at hackathons, you know, a team of people who don't aren't necessarily super technical, and then somebody who's a developer, and the developer is kind of typing furiously and try, you know, sweating and trying to fix things and and trying to make everything work, and everybody's kind of everybody else is kind of leaning back and their arms are crossed and they don't know what to do. Yeah. Um. And all of a sudden, when we were like, well, let's not just learn this stuff in the abstract. Let's make something that scrapes. Cook County Jail inmate data, which is a data set that doesn't exist um, or didn't exist, I should say, in any kind of public or machine-readable form. But there's a way you could look up inmates. Um, we were like, well, let's let's game that system and let's figure out how to kind of fool it into giving us the data that we want to track. Um, all of a sudden, a whole bunch of people's skills became relevant and useful. So journalists would come in and start asking questions of the data that, that the engineers had just never thought of. Um, we had a kind of a seasoned reporter come in and he just started just peppering us with questions like, who's been there the longest? Who's been there the shortest? Um, what's the average length of stay? Like all these questions that, you know, we were kind of like, oh, well, you know, even some of them that we brought up, we were like, ah, oh, well, we'll ask that eventually. Yeah, it was it was data. We've got data, but then yeah, what questions the ought to be asked of it to actually pull meaning out of that new data source? That's the kind of stuff that like the reporters can bring in there and really make it something of value. Exactly. And then we, another guy that we had who came in, um, this really really thoughtful young man, um, he uh He'd been, he's mentally ill, um, really, really bright, but like struggles with bipolar disorder and, you know, from a really tough background. And so he'd been in and out of Cook County Jail. (laughs) And so, you know, he'd been coming to these classes that I've been trying to give religiously and really had not gotten a lot out of them. And I really had felt like I'd failed him in a lot of ways. And then all of a sudden he was like, well, I know why the data is that way. He's like, because they use these crazy paper intake forms. Um, <laughs> and then all of a sudden he was invested. And so, and so we were like, oh, well, that's cool. Like, well, like, let's sit down and, and you drive and, and let's dig into how we're going to actually analyze that data. And so it just, you know, it was just such a powerful way to kind of, to kind of teach these skills. So I, I think actually more generally, like, if people are interested in, you know, quote unquote, learning how to code, which is so amorphous and so vague, you know, tell a story and just learn what you need to tell the story, whether that's HTML or CSS or how to use a couple libraries in JavaScript or how to set up a WordPress blog and just do, you know, start publishing all that's the, you know, once you have that focused, you'll learn. I, I really want to say thank you very much for joining us. It's, it's been a pleasure. And, um, you know, if anybody is interested in more information on this, um, I think, you know, they can, they can follow you at, um, Eads, E-A-D-S on Twitter and then, uh, NPR Viz, NPR V-I-Z on Twitter as well are great places for information. Um, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for listening to Insert Content Here. If you'd like to catch up on our archives or keep up on our new episodes, visit us at lullabot.com slash ideas slash podcasts slash insert content here. You can also visit us directly at insertcontenthere.com. Mm-hmm.